Thank you, Helen, um, so very much. Um, as Helen said, my name is Stuart. I um, uh, serve as part of the team here at Central, um, and it is a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning um, to be sharing in the next part of this series. And it is my prayer that we will be lifted up and challenged and provoked and changed um, and ultimately look a little bit more like Jesus when we leave than when we came in. Um, and as it has it's been said, we have been in a series um, on the Beatitudes, and it's this first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, maybe his most famous sermon ever. Um, and in, if, if this is your first week with us, um, or you're just dropping in, uh, and you want to kind of figure out how we've got to where we, where we are now, I would encourage you to go back to, uh, and listen to what we've covered so far. Um, this has been one of them series, and, and I believe it's one of them series that kind of minds in us something much deeper than we probably would like it to. You know, it's one of those things that gets under our skin. And, and I believe that God is doing something in us as a community and as a church as we unpack um, this series. So if you want to catch up, you can do that just about anywhere where you listen to podcasts. And actually what we've covered so far, I think, actually sets the scene quite well for where we're landing today. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Matthew 5? Um, and we're in verse 6 of that passage. So Matthew 5, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, the word should appear behind me on the screen. So this is what it says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Um, in the last number of weeks, Hannah and I bought our very first home. Um, yes, thank you. Um, yes, it's been one of those mental processes where we've been living with my mum and dad for the last sort of seven or eight months. Um, it's been, I mean, it's been okay. Uh, as much as living back living at home is. Um, they've been great. They've been so hospitable to us. But we've been saving up every last penny we could find on the street uh, putting it in our pockets, putting it in into our bank and hoping that it is enough to get over the line. And somehow we have managed to do that and we got the keys just a few weeks ago. And it's always been a dream of ours since we've been married. Um, we've been married just two years, but it's always been a dream that we would have a place of our own, somewhere we could call ours, that we could invite people to, that we could you know, host our community, invest in people, all that sort of stuff. And you know, the the dream is the Pinterest dream, right? You'll know what I'm talking about. You know, the whitewashed walls, you know, the shower room that has like a waterfall, you know, the big garden. I want a football pitch. Hannah won't let me get one. Um, you know, just like that perfect dream. Everything's, you know, bespoke Scandinavian, you know, just perfect, you know, untouchable. That's the dream, right? And by God's good grace, as I say, we got a seal over the line and we are now the proud owners of the worst decorated house you will ever see in your life. I mean, like, there's, I've never seen so many electrical cables in one place. It's like what I imagine living inside a computer is like. You know, there's just like wires everywhere. We have a bathroom door that opens the wrong way, right? So it opens the wrong way. It has no lock and you can see through it. So... I mean, I don't know who was living in this house before, but there was obviously an awful lot of comfort in that house, right? 
there are like multiple layers of wallpaper. There's like pattern wallpaper. There's like chipboard wallpaper, half and half wallpaper. There's wallpaper that's been painted, all of which are like on top of each other. So every layer comes off. It's like a big game of pass the parcel, right? And the present at the end is just like the plasterboard that comes off with the paper, right? It is, it is mad, honestly. And I say that, and we are, don't get me wrong, we are like so very, very thankful. Um, but I have always, you know, we have always wanted that house and what we have dreamed of that to be, to be something where we can invest in others. And, you know, we always live towards the vision of what we want to see in the world. For us, with, with that house, it is that it will be what we have always hoped it would but we always live towards the vision of what we want to see in the world. And it's our vision and our longing that establishes um, kind of the direction for our lives. And it's our, our, our longings that orient us towards our actions. So, you know, if you want good grades, you study. If you want to run a sub four minute mile, you run very, very fast. If you long for that thing, the car, the job, the relationship, the family, whatever it is, the likelihood is that if you long for it, that you will live towards the vision of that thing becoming a reality in your life. And you know, that's not a negative thing. You know, ne- you know longings and desires are, are kind of intrinsic- intrinsically built in all of us. They are very natural. St. Augustine, one of the kind of you know, fathers of faith, um, once penned in one of his you know, famous works, The Confessions, he wrote that, you know, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Longings and desires are built in all of us. They are an integral part of what it means to be human. God made us this way. And as we approach this, the fourth beatitude in this series, we find that longing and desire are at the heart of what Jesus has to say. And I believe that for us today, that he has something to say to us about the universal experience of longing, that he has something to say to the insatiable hunger and thirst of the human heart and the relentless desire for more. Just to remind you what Jesus said, this is what, what it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And as we unpack this incredibly challenging comment in Jesus' Beatitudes, uh, I want to firstly look at the term righteousness and then look at very quickly what hungering and thirsting for that righteousness looks like as we go after it in our lives, in our discipleship to Jesus. And so we have this word righteousness. And it's one of those words that um, if you've been around church for any length of time, you will probably probably heard it. Um, the term righteous or righteousness appears just shy of a thousand times in the entirety of Scripture. It's one of those kind of buzzwords of faith. Um, and we hear it a lot in these contexts. But the likelihood is that you probably don't hear it much beyond these kinds of contexts. I'm not a betting man. But if I was, I would guarantee that you're not going to go into work tomorrow, ask someone how their weekend was, and they'll say, oh, I was so righteous. Or, you know, you're not going to get a birthday card that'll say, have a really righteous birthday. I mean, if I got a birthday card that said that, I'd I'd expect some, like, financial compensation to fall out of it to make up for the terrible birthday wish. But it's just not in our vocab. It's just not really what we hear beyond the church. 
And the closest thing we ever really get to it is actually in a negative sense. You know, if somebody is, if we deem somebody to be self-righteous or something to be self-righteous. But we don't really hear much of it beyond that. It's just not in our day-to-day vocabulary. And yet here it is at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. And if Jesus says the blessedness comes to those who hunger and thirst for it, then what exactly is it that he's calling us to hunger and thirst for? Well, the word uh, righteousness in the original Greek is this word, dikaiosune. It appears 92 times in the New Testament. only appears in the New Testament. We don't see it at all in the Old Testament. Um, But what is it? What is the righteousness? What is the dikaiosune? Well, two things. In a broader sense, it is the state of someone who is as they ought to be. And in a narrower sense, it is justice or the virtue which gives each person what they are due. In other words, righteousness, the dikaiosune, is personal holiness and it is social justice. It's what John Tyson says, it is the holistic vision of being right with God and God making things right in the world. Personal holiness and social justice. And those are the two things that I kind of want to unpack uh, very quickly this morning as we understand and try to understand what righteousness actually is. And the first is personal holiness. What I'm about to say next, I don't know if I should be ashamed or, you know, delighted, but here it goes. Um, before Central uh, planted, uh, a number of us were involved in, in Carmoni Church. It's a church that we planted from. Um, Dave, who, who now leads Central, was the worship pastor there, and quite a number of us were um, were involved with, with that ministry. And uh, I was I was I was a part of that. Um, and, and I think it was maybe around 2014, Dave decided that he was going to host like a, a Christmas party for us all. And uh, you know where this is going. Uh, and so we kind of we there was maybe I don't know 60 of us, and we kind of got together, Dave rented a room in the Mac Theatre. I always felt that was relatively prophetic um, because that's where we ended up about six years later. But uh, we rented a room, uh, we had food, it was a brilliant night and um, Dave got up probably 10 minutes before the end and decided that he was going to introduce, unknown to us all, the Worship Okie Awards. Now what these were, were a set of awards that were essentially here to take the mick out of everybody for the terrible things they had done in the last year on the team. So there was like, I don't know, worst bum note played. There was an award for that. The lateness award. Awards for coming into songs in the wrong key. A total classic. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, There was, I think there might have been one for someone blowing up the PA system at one point, potentially. There we go. Um, And then there was the award that I won. So here goes. I was the recipient of the Moni Tavoni Award for holiest person on team. Right, I I mean, (laughs) yes, please, no. Honestly, it was the most mortifying thing. I I still don't really know what to say about that. You know, I don't know if it was like, you know, something that I should be delighted about or absolutely mortified, but I genuinely, I was. I did not know what to say, but I was the holiest person on team, right? Terrible. And like... I, th- I, think, I think the reason why that jars 
with me and probably George with us, you know, the term of being you know, tagged as holy is because most of the time we don't really ever feel holy, do we? We don't really feel like we carry a disposition of holiness in our lives. Like when I think of my habits, when I think of, you know, my instincts, the things that I do, the things that I say, it is so far from holiness and I can probably guess that you feel like that too at times. Because so often we think of holiness as merely some sort of behavior modification, don't we? Like holiness is doing all the right things, never speaking out of turn, being generous and just kind of being good all the time. And on one hand, yes, that, that could be correct. You know, the pursuit of holiness does and should change how we live. But as we acknowledge that we live in a broken world as broken people, we have to understand that we will never reach the heights of holiness that have been set by God in this world, not while sin has its place here. However, to simply think of holiness as behavior modification or just being better, I believe actually is to dilute what holiness actually is because I believe that holiness is so much more than just being good because it's holiness that makes us a distinct people in the world. It's holiness that sets us apart. And it's nothing that we can fabricate in our own lives or ultimately reach by trying really hard, but it's the outcome of a God-given gift through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the gift of his Holy Spirit that he sent to fill us. And it's worth noting that being holy and living a life of holiness aren't necessarily the same thing. One is an, an inheritance through faith in Jesus. The other is the choice to live in the way of Jesus. One is an inheritance through faith in Jesus. The other is a choice as we live in the way of Jesus. For anyone who has accepted God's gift of salvation through faith, you are deemed holy. You are a living temple where his presence dwells. That's what the justification through faith means. But the pursuit of personal holiness in our lives is the outworking of that faith. It's what the writer of the Hebrews meant when he writes these words in Hebrews 10. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who are being made holy. This is an active living pursuit in our lives through the process of sanctification and being in relationship with Jesus. And so if we are ever to experience this side of righteousness, the dikaiosune, if we are ever to know fully what that is and what that means for us in our lives, then we need to move towards an act of holiness, a holiness that is personal, that we invest in, because only when we do that will we understand the righteousness that Jesus is calling us towards in this beatitude. And the thing about righteousness too is that it is integral with purpose. It is integral with our purpose. We read these words in Titus 2, 14. Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself for, for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. That is what we were made for, to be a people that are his very own. And if righteousness is on one hand, the state of someone 
as they ought to be, then it's through a personal relationship with Jesus and a longing to be like him that moves us towards our true, divinely inspired purpose. And that changes how we live. When we grasp that God, the creator of all of this, the entire cosmos, wants relationship with small, seemingly insignificant us. When we realize that we were made for relationship with him, what that should do is, is plant a hunger and a thirst to want to know him more. And it's through that that we will discover and rediscover time and time and time again what it was we were made for. Our righteousness is integral with our purpose. But we also have to acknowledge that personal holiness is costly. I love what um, some of our friends at Lagan Valley Vineyard say quite often. They say that sacrifice isn't really sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. And the truth is that the pursuit of holiness does come at a cost. I'm not going to try and gloss over that for you or sugarcoat that or or anything this morning. Holiness is costly. Sometimes that cost is painful. It costs you your reputation. Sometimes it's the last thing we want. And if you're anything like me, too often you take the shortcut and we think that we know best and we compromise and pursue self-sufficiency and self-service over self-denial. And in a world that tells you that you you are the center of your own story and you do you, and you do what makes you happy. Personal holiness is the antithesis of that. It's offensive to the world of the self-made man. And yet Jesus says that righteousness and fulfillment is found in knowing him and living in his way. And it's personal holiness that will get us there and it's probably going to cost you. But the incredible thing is that what he has to offer us so much more than anything the world has to offer. And that's not to say that what the things of the, this world necessarily are bad. Most of the time they are good, you know, but sometimes good is the enemy of the great. And what Jesus has to offer us is so much greater than anything the world can. I love what John Piper writes in his book on fasting. He says these words. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things are not evil in themselves. They're not vices. They're not, they are gifts from God. They're your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling and investing, TV watching and internet surfing, shopping and exercising, collecting and talking. But any of these can become deadly substitutes for God. The greatest enemy of, of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the, of, it's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. We are constantly being offered alternatives to God from the world around us, constantly being invited to nibble at the table of the world, whether it's in the jobs or the cars, the money, the sex, the you know, exceptionalism, you know, relationships numbing out on Netflix. I don't know, I could go on and on and on. But in order to be in right relationship with Jesus, we need a personal holiness and a willingness to sacrifice some of these things in order to know what God's best is for us in our lives. It is a longing for personal holiness that leads to fulfillment 
and satisfaction and the satisfaction that we so deeply and so desperately long for. Isn't that what you want in your life? For those deep internal longings and desires to be ultimately satisfied? May we be a people of personal holiness, who are a people in pursuit of holiness. And as we do so, we will experience more of who God is and we will discover and rediscover time again what it was we were really made for. This righteousness is firstly a call to personal holiness, but secondly, it is a call to social justice. So if one side of righteousness is holiness, a man, you know, being made right with God, then the other side is a more expansive version and vision of that. It's the justice or the virtue which gives each person what they are due. In Christian theology, there are two main schools of thought around revelation. And by revelation, I mean the ways in which God speaks to us and reveals himself to us, and on one hand, we have what's called special revelation, or direct revelation is another term. Um, and basically, what that is is the ways in which God speaks to us directly in kind of unique, special ways. So things like prophecy or miracles, um, you know, dreams, those sorts of things. And the other side of that is what we call general revelation or indirect revelation, and that's where God reveals His nature to us through things that are available to all of us, the physical things in front of us. So that includes things like nature and the splendor of the natural world or through scripture, which is physical in front of us or other people. But another element of general revelation is our conscience and our awareness of morality, of good and of bad. And we all have an awareness of Morality, and so we all have an awareness of justice, don't we? I remember a few years back watching that series on Netflix, When They See Us. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's about um, the, the New York Five, the teenage five, or the five teenage boys who uh, were wrongly accused, um, convicted and jailed of assaulting and raping a woman in 1989. Um, and without ruining it for you, which is code for I'm about to ruin it for you, uh, basically they get uh, set up by the police um, and they, they kind of, their stories are manipulated and what happens is they pin them against one another to find them guilty. And I, I remember watching that first episode and I could just feel the injustice like burn in my bones, like I could feel it deep. And to this day I haven't watched past the first episode. It's a true story. And we know how it ends. It generally, well, it ends well in the end, although it takes a while to get there. But I still can't bring myself to watch it. I can't bring myself to watch it because of the immorality and the injustice that we see in that series. We all have an awareness of morality and justice, and so we also have an awareness of injustice too. And I can guarantee you feel that as you you know, watch your television screens at night and you just watch the ongoing horrors of the world as you doom scroll on your social media feed, I can almost guarantee that something will jar with you as you see the state of the world. And here at the heart of this beatitude, here at the heart of righteousness that Jesus calls, the hunger, calls us to hunger and thirst for is 
justice. And we love justice, right? We do, we love it. We see people advocating for justice just about everywhere nowadays. There's justice campaigns happening all the time all around us. Just in this last week, we saw those uh, Just Stop Oil protests happening all over the UK with people kind of blocking roads. I actually saw people suspend themselves from hammocks over the Queen Elizabeth II Bridge in Dartford at like 180 feet or something. You know, all in protest. Like, people go far and wide to protest and all to do it all in the name of justice. And if it's not, you know, that, we've seen so many working unions be, you know, protested against um, over job quality and pay. We saw uh, recent protests with race and equality with Black Lives Matter. In recent years, we've seen the Me Too movement kind of rise and we've seen protests and, and, and the desire for justice against women who have been sexually harassed and assaulted in the workplace. And if you go five minutes from this building, no doubt you will pass like so many different protests in Corn Market as they all advocate for justice. There's a cause for just about everything you can think of. And we love justice. We go very far to show how much we love it. But the issue is that we all have our own justice system, don't we? We all come at justice with our own agendas, with our own worldviews. And some of that, don't get me wrong, is unavoidable. We can't not approach these things with a worldview. But the reality is that when we do that, that we set the parameters for justice. And we, see, we set the parameters for the justice that we want to see in the world. And we set the boundaries for what justice should look like and to whom it should be extended. But really all that does is cause division. And all of a sudden, justice campaigns are pitted against one another because they believe that their cause is of greater importance in the world. It's like when we had the climate march here about a year ago. Um, Tear Fund, a Christian justice charity, hosted a prayer and worship event in here before that, that march. And we then, there was quite a few of us there, we were leading worship at that event. And um, we, we then went out to join the march. Um, but right outside our gates, as we gathered for prayer and worship before that, was a counter-protest to our protest because they believed that their cause was of greater importance to ours and what they wanted us to do was join theirs and leave ours. There was a counter-protest to the protest. We all have a vision and a version of justice. Jonathan Dodson says this, we all, all of us are prone to replace God with our own vision of justice. This can tyrannize both social justice advocates and those who are indifferent to justice. The advocate can be so dominated by the God of justice that the failure to advocate for just policies, treatments, and ends leads to self-destructive anger or despair. When enslaved to the God of justice, it's easy to judge those who disagree with us or those who are slow to grasp the gravity of the issue. This functional God leads to divisiveness and disunity. In other words, he's saying that what can so easily happen is that with so many people seeking their own version of justice rather than God's true, pure justice, what happens is people become more and more tribal about their cause, and quite often it just leads to more disunity and more division and more oppression because the justice doesn't get served because we get so caught up just trying to pit ours against theirs. 
So we need a biblical understanding of justice. And biblical justice is a massive, massive topic, and it's not one that we'll tackle today. You'll be glad to know. However, we have to recognize that biblical justice is not set by us. We, the church, don't get to set the parameters for biblical justice. Can it be modeled by the church? Absolutely, and it should be. We should be the carriers of that. But we don't set its standards. Only God does that. Only God does that. But to put some meat on the bones of this, um, I love what John Calvin writes um, in his Institutes of Christian Religion. Um, he writes extensively on biblical justice, if you want a very extensive, hard to understand understanding of uh, justice. I, I point you towards that. It'll probably put you to sleep, but he does have some very good things to say in there. And he writes extensively on biblical justice, but one of the things that he, he, he hones in on with biblical justice is that it finds its roots in equality because we're all made in the Imago Dei. We are all made in the image of Christ. He writes this, the great part of the human race are mostly are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But here, Scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider what men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. We remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels their transgressions, and with beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. That is biblical justice. Does anybody else feel the gravity of that? Does anybody else feel the weight of that, you know, I don't say that to guilt you or to make you feel bad. I, you know, I recognize that the bar is high. But we also have to recognize that that's what biblical justice looks like. That's what righteousness looks like. And we are to remember that those least like us are made in the image of Christ. That those we find easy, are hard to like and easy to dismiss are made in the image of Christ. That self-centered work colleague made in the image of Christ. That person that hurt you and wronged you made in the image of Christ. Liz Truss, made in the image of Christ. Vladimir Putin, made in the image of Christ. Now do you feel the weight of that? And that doesn't mean we condone any of their behavior or we accept the poor actions of the people in power or we get walked over by those who have wronged us. But it does mean that we see them beyond what we view. That's why this beatitude is so provocative. That's why it is offensive. Because in the economy of God, biblical justice says that we are all made in the image of Christ. And even though our minds struggle to understand and come to terms with that at times, that is the righteousness that we are called to. You know, it's also, I find quite encouraging this week as I, as I you know, planned it's, that it's worth noting the tense at which Jesus speaks of in this 
Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It doesn't say they are filled, but that they will be filled. He puts no time frame on it, just that they will be filled. And I say that today because there is a future dimension to this Beatitude. Our world is very broken. We are very broken people. And this call to righteousness might seem like a step too far, that it's not really attainable while the world is how it is. And on one hand, you're probably right. Because we won't see all the injustices of this world undone. We won't ever be the picture of holiness. Not in this life, not while sin has its place in the world. However, we hope in the promise that God, who is all holy, when he comes back, that he will have the final say over everything, that the new heaven will take its place on earth and there will be an end to all the injustices that we see and we will be made whole. It's those beautiful words at the end of the storybook Bible that everything that is sad will come untrue. Everything that is sad will come untrue. And that is the tension that we live in. The now and the not yet of the kingdom as we hunger and thirst for biblical justice and the renewal of all things as we embody something that is still to come. We embody something that is still to come. That is the decaiosine. That is righteousness and that's what Jesus says leads to a blessed life. And we may not know it all now, but one day we will, and we will be filled. So practically speaking, then, very quickly, if that's what righteousness is, if it's the pursuit of personal holiness in our lives, if it is to go after social justice in our world, then how the heck are we meant to get there? Well, it's at the start of what Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For those who hunger and thirst. It's our hungering and our thirsting. You know, as I've worked towards this today, um, and I've kind of, I'll be honest, I've felt like I've been fighting with this beatitude this week, um, and I've wrestled hard with its implications. Yeah, but I've, I've wondered why Jesus used the analogy of hunger and thirst. And maybe the reason he does is because our hunger and thirst point to our basic need, don't they? It's our physical hunger and our thirst that point to our need for nutrition and hydration, the absolute bare minimum basics of what we need to live. And so to hunger and thirst is to first acknowledge our need. It's to acknowledge our need. We need a depth awareness of our need. And if we're ever going to follow Jesus and if we're going to follow him in a a way that brings life to the places and spaces that we occupy, the the families we come from, the homes we come from, the friendship circles, the workplaces, then we're going to have to come to terms with our need. We see time and time again that in the Beatitudes, the bar is set high. Excuse me. We see that the bar is set high. And we have to be firstly humble enough to acknowledge and understand that we are in deep need of God's help. 
because it's in our sense of so desperately needing him that moves us towards him. And as we do so, we realize that he is there waiting for us with his arms open, ready to receive us as we are in our brokenness and in our need. And as we come before him, we encounter his love and his mercy and his justice and his grace. And what that does is, in response, it leads us towards a life of righteousness. And once you've tasted something of God's righteousness, it always leads to one thing more. One commentator writes this, the more one conforms to God's will, the more fulfilled and content one becomes. But that in turn spasms a greater discontent. Our hunger increases and intensifies in the very act of being satisfied. The paradox of hungering and thirsting for righteousness only leads to one thing more of it. John Nelson Darby has this fascinating insight into this and he actually takes it one step further. He writes, to be hungry is not enough. I must really be starving to know what God's heart towards me, what's in God's heart toward me. The prodigal son who was, was hungry, when he was hungry, he, he went to feed on the husks of the pigs. When he was starving, he returned to his father. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks of the pigs. When he was starving, he returned home to his father. That's what hungering and thirsting is. And as we acknowledge our deep need, as we starve for God's righteousness, then we will be truly filled because he meets us where we are. And he embraces us and he fills us afresh. The Dikaiosune, the righteousness that we read of here, that Jesus so provocatively speaks of, it firstly looks like personal holiness. It is a call to live a life that seeks deep relationship with him, with the one who created us. That we would know God and be known by him. And as we do that, we would in turn become more like him being a distinct people in the world. And secondly, it is a call to social justice, to see the world and, and its people as he does, to acknowledge that even in the desperate state of the world that we find ourselves, that his justice will ultimately prevail. And as we accept our limits, as we become increasingly aware of our deep need and in turn hunger and thirst and long and faint for the righteousness of God, we will be filled and we will be a blessed people, the blessed people of God, both now in this life and even more so in the life to come. And so as I wrap up this morning, the question that I land on as I wrap up is what are you ultimately longing for? What are you hungering and thirsting for are you starving for the righteousness of God may we be a people who are devoted to that devoted to personal holiness devoted to the holiness that longs and faints for our God given purpose to be in deep relationship with him and may we be a people who are marked by biblical justice that seek to be carriers of a hope that points 
the ultimate satisfaction that will come when Jesus returns and we live on in eternity with him. May we be those people, a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because only then will we be filled.